You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleinman. On this episode, we talk about the politics of Bitcoin with author David Galumbia. His book is entitled The Politics of Bitcoin, Software as Right-Wing Extremism. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with David Golumbia about the politics of Bitcoin. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. In lieu of the regular format of our current events section, which Andrew and I discuss a topic in the news, uh, I'm going to be reading a statement for this current events section. This is a statement that Marxist Humanist Initiative signed on to last week was written by the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign. It's a statement that was written prior to Russia's attack on Ukraine as tensions were escalating. The statement reads, We socialists, trade unionists, scholars, activists for human rights, social justice, and peace stand in solidarity with the people of Ukraine against Russian imperialism. The international left and labor movement must vigorously oppose Russia's threats against Ukraine. We say neither Washington nor Moscow. We oppose the policy and maneuverings of the big Western powers and NATO. But currently, it is Russia that is threatening the Ukrainian people's right to self-determination and challenging their legitimacy as an independent nation. It is Russia that has amassed troops on Ukraine's borders, Russia that has annexed Crimea and persecuted the Crimean Tartars, and Russia that has organized an eight-year war in eastern Ukraine leading up to 14,000 deaths, 30,000 wounded, and 1.9 million displaced people on the Ukrainian side alone. Subjugated by Russian Tsarist and Stalinist rulers, for centuries Ukraine was the object of exploitation and national oppression, its culture and language subject to discrimination. Millions perished at the hands of the Kremlin. We call for peace through self-determination of the Ukrainian people. That does not mean support for the current government of Ukraine or the capitalist oligarchs it serves. Despite its rhetoric, self-evidently the Russian government is interested in neither democracy nor opposing fascism. The Russian government actively promotes pro-Russian sections of the far right in occupied eastern Ukraine and other parts of Europe, and its anti-Ukrainian policy strengthens the hand of far-right Ukrainian nationalists too. We hail the brave internationalists in Russia protesting against Putin's war politics. We demand the release of Russian political prisoners. We stand in solidarity with socialists, trade unionists, and activists for democratic and human rights who can bring real progress in Ukraine and in Russia. We demand the withdrawal of Russia's troops from their Ukrainian borders and occupied territories and an end to Russian interference in Ukraine. We are recording this segment on February 25th, and we are pleased to welcome to the podcast David Columbia. David is an associate professor of English at the Virginia Commonwealth University, and he is the author of two books, The Cultural Logic of Computation from Harvard University Press, and the book we're going to be talking about today, The Politics of Bitcoin, 
Software as Right-Wing Extremism, and that's with the University of Minnesota Press. And that book is from 2016, is that right? That's right. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, welcome, David. So we're going to be talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but particularly the your book is about the sort of libertarian right-wing politics in which cryptocurrency is enmeshed. And I kind of want to just jump right into that, but we probably should define Bitcoin for our listeners in case anyone is fuzzy on what is Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I almost hesitate to ask because often discussions about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency seem to get bogged down in technicalities and they miss like the, the the political context so but we should probably you know cover the the basics so maybe you could give us a, a definition well sure but let me just say something about what you just said because i think that um the question of sort of defining what cryptocurrencies are and having sort of qualifications for being part of a conversation is a big part of how the politics works. And there's, you know, there's nothing right. the crypto people love more than to say, you can't be a part of this conversation because you don't understand how the technology works. And right. one of the things that's really frustrating about that is that um, blockchain, which I'll explain in a second, but the technology that crypto works on is a real technology. But, you know, there are lots of other real technologies and the blockchain people are for the most part, they have real difficulty explaining how their technology is similar to and different from other technologies that many of us understand, talk about, and don't run into the same problem on a regular basis. So there is something funny going on with this conversation and the fact that pretty much every work about this has to start with, well, what in the world are these things? As if there's some terrible problem understanding them. And I, I don't think there is, but I, you know, I will give the canned version of it, which is that blockchain is a, it's a model, but it's a kind of, it's a kind of software program that anyone can download and run on their computer. And you run, you run this software and you solve some math problems. And if you solve enough math problems quickly enough, you get entered into a lottery, and the lottery occasionally generates a cryptocurrency token for you. This is part of why there's such concern about the, the energy usage of Bitcoin, because all these computers running all these math problems, trying to solve them, and then occasionally spitting out a cryptocurrency token to them is incredibly wasteful. It is wasteful by design. And in fact, part of the way the system is built and that I think is politically interesting is that the, the math problems become more and more difficult over time, which is supposed to limit the number of tokens that get created, but in fact increases the amount of energy you have to use in order to get one of these tokens. And there's another politically interesting thing here too, because you know if you look back at the white paper that was written about Bitcoin in 2009 that started all of this, the promise was that anybody could run this software on their computer and would occasionally get a Bitcoin. And that was true, right? I even did it for a short period of time. Like, you could just run the software, and Bitcoins were very, very cheap back then, and, you know, occasionally your computer would spit out a Bitcoin. But because the problems become more and more difficult over time, it's become less and less feasible for ordinary people to run the programs, run the software on their computers. And, in fact, you really need to be running huge stacks of computers to ever have a hope of getting a Bitcoin anymore. So in fact, although they talk about things like de distributed computing and decentralization, in fact, only very wealthy and powerful people are able to afford to run the software and create tokens for themselves. So that's one part of the story. Let me just say one other thing, which is for most people who are involved in this world, 
they don't touch that stuff at all, right? They go to an online exchange, which is very similar to a stockbroker, and they, in one way or another, transmit some money to them, and the, t- the, the broker gives them a few bitcoins, and they you know, buy and sell them. They don't generate them. They don't, all they're doing is the same way you could go to a sports betting site or a, you know, a bank, a credit union, anything, and you just do ordinary financial transactions. There is some confusion in the discussion because there are these sort of two flavors of it. There's like, what is it to run the software and actually create these tokens? And then there is, what is it to use Bitcoin? And for 90% of the people who are doing it is the second very ordinary pedestrian use in which people will sometimes be confused because this doesn't seem that different from using any other kind of financial product. And in fact, it isn't, right? It's So you can use Bitcoin and contact with this relatively unusual form of software that actually creates it. I feel like there are, there's the people that are really into Bitcoin. They, they, they buy into the concept and they can talk your ear off about either the politics or the technology of it. And then there are people like me who've just been kind of ignoring the phenomena for a long time because it seemed like just a bunch of speculation and hype about some you know speculative asset that wasn't really money and was just like driven by the ponzi scheme sort of logic hoping that it'll continue to gain in value if more people keep buying it and so there's this endless hype about it right even part of the vitriol which critics of bitcoin get attacked seems to be partly just people defending like the value of their assets they don't want negative messaging out there about an asset they don't want to lose the value of their bitcoin right Absolutely. And, you know, the vitriol, which is often directed at people like me and comes from some of often very, very wealthy and powerful people who who have hoarded a lot of Bitcoin. But in fact, that conversation is not really meant for them or for me. It is meant for a lot of unsuspecting people in the public who I think are basically marks for these people who they need they need to they need them to put their money into the Bitcoin system so that these people with tons of them can unload them. And they're afraid that they're listening to the critics and hearing us be like, that is not the best thing to do with your money if you are at all concerned about holding on to it. But this brings us to the question of, is Bitcoin money? (laughs) Which we should probably, before we even get into the politics of it, maybe we should explore that question a little bit. Bitcoin is called uh, a currency, and that's debatable. But the, the, the real question from an economic standpoint is whether it's money uh, or not. And just let me preface this because people who are not economists get very confused because of an ambiguity in the language. Oftentimes we use the term money to mean wealth or something that has value. So we say Bill Gates has a lot of money. Well, I don't know how much money he has. He owns a lot of corporate stock. He's got buildings up the yin-yang, probably owns a lot of bonds and so forth. But then there's money, you know, cash, funds in bank accounts. How much money does he actually have? I have no idea. Okay, so when we talk about money, we're not talking about wealth, assets in general. We're, We're talking about something specific. And the something specific is what makes money different from all other assets or things that have value. First of all, to be money, an instrument has to be a medium of exchange, generally accepted in exchange. Not like, you know, tomatoes you give to your neighbor, they give you some squash back. Those are squash and tomatoes accepted in exchange, but not generally. Nobody's going to say, gee, I can take this squash 
and then go, you know, buy a shirt for it. That will not be generally accepted in an exchange. Uh, and another very important role that money plays is that it's a means of payment. It's a means of paying off your debts. So let's say you buy a couch at Wayfair and it's an installment plan and you pay over 24 months. Wayfair will take dollars because they will take a fixed number of dollars that they contract with you at the start and say 23 months later you're going to pay us X amount of dollars. So if Bitcoin or anything else is to function as money it would have to be the Wayfair would say, okay, 23 months down the line, we'll be happy to take a fixed number of these things in exchange for you paying off the couch. So given all of this, David, is Bitcoin money? And if not, could it become money? I mean, one can imagine a world, I suppose, in which people decide to denominate their items in Bitcoin. It seems almost unthinkable to me, and I would say there is no chance of it happening. To use the example you've given, where retailers have decided to accept Bitcoin as a form of payment, they do not actually price the items in Bitcoin, right? They price them in whatever the local money is, and they then force you to exchange the Bitcoin for what is stable is the price in dollars or pounds, right? And the Bitcoin fluctuates like crazy, so you might well you know, buy a couch for $100 this month, and maybe Bitcoin cost $100. And in 24 months, Bitcoin costs $200. And you only have to give them half a Bitcoin instead of a whole one. And so the denomination, and this was true on the dark web drug markets everywhere, even if you can directly pay in Bitcoin, they, they can't denominate it in Bitcoin, because, you know, with their other hand, they're celebrating that Bitcoin is skyrocketing in value. So it's very hard to use, you know, as you said, like for something to be a, a useful as a medium of exchange, you want it to have a relatively stable value over time. And, in, you know, the Bitcoin people with their other hand, are, they love Bitcoin because it isn't stable in value. Right. And if everybody was convinced that it was, good, that it was going to keep going up in value, people would be very happy to take it. But people believe that it's a bubble for very good reasons and that you're left uh, holding the bag when people pay off in Bitcoin 24 months later and it's worthless. That's the fear. I think that's why people are reluctant, and retailers and so forth, are reluctant to take it. I mean, I know I get a Social Security check from the U.S. government, and if they were to pay me in Bitcoin, I would be really pissed off. Right. Well, and, and you saw the, the sort of paradoxes because when the retailers would take Bitcoin, which they've few of, fewer of them do now than they used to, but they were always just converting them into the, you know, into whatever the local currency was. Nobody was actually happy to let it be denominated in the Bitcoin value. And again, that seemed to just give the lie to the whole story that these people. That had. absolutely does. That gives the lie to it. When the USSR collapsed, the same thing happened to the ruble. Russians would fork out rubles like if they were going to buy a car, but the cars were priced in dollars, and so you would contract in dollars, and then they would look up the spot price, spot exchange rate of dollars for rubles, and say, okay, so it's $20,000, it's this number of rubles, and you'd fork over rubles. Okay, but that is the essence of the ruble having collapsed, no longer being money, no longer generally accepted in exchange. It was just another form of dollars at that point. I can only agree. 
even in the places where they talk about using it, there's always a conversion into something more recognizable as money. And I, I don't know how much you've gotten into the, the details of this, but one of the reasons critics like me are concerned about the Bitcoin market is because they rely on these things called stable coins, right? Which are um, unlike Bitcoin and other famous cryptocurrencies, the stable coins are not Nobody can go and generate these things on their own. They're actually generated by a central authority, just much like a central bank, except that it's completely not responsible to anybody. And it can make claims about how its tokens are backed that nobody can actually verify. But this one of the things that's interesting about the stablecoins, the most famous one of them is Tether, is that they are priced exactly at the price of a given local currency. So Tether, in particular, is tied to the U.S. dollar, and one Tether coin equals one U.S. dollar. At least that's what they claim. And that could be used as a currency, I suppose, and nobody even tries to. Right? They, they, none of these cryptocurrency promoters, they have a token that is a lot closer to a currency. It is not money regardless, and you still are pricing things in the dollar. But at least as a token, it is closer in function to what they claim that the crypto should do, and they couldn't care less about it. They are only interested in Bitcoin going to the moon. Well, this discussion of Tether brings up this claim that we often hear that Bitcoin is, quote-unquote, decentralized. Um, you know, because it's not issued by a treasury or hasn't doesn't have to do with central banks. Would you agree with this claim? Can Bitcoin be characterized accurately as being decentralized? This is a this is one of my you know favorite areas to talk about in Bitcoin world because, um, like in everything else we've been talking about, there is a tremendous amount of wordplay going on that is very unfortunate and that the Bitcoin promoters will always use to twist things in their direction. Decentralization has a whole long history that we could talk about. It is mostly found on the political right, although not entirely. There is some leftist tradition of decentralization in which you are mostly talking about you know, more localized control of local issues and more, you know, devolved governments and things. But when people like Hayek talk about decentralization, they mean no government. So there is a there is kind of, there is a pretty big fracture there. And so that just putting that aside for a minute, you know, when when you look at the Bitcoin white paper, you know, and all the crypto anarchist people talk about Bitcoin, it's like they draw a picture of a network in which it looks almost like a map of an egalitarian democracy. There's thousands of equipotent nodes out there, and everybody's contributing in a relatively equal way to create this larger structure. And, you know, it's kind of like the way that hardcore capitalists talk about the free market. Like, everyone is equal. Everyone can participate. But we actually have created a system that has no safeguards against people coming in and just swooping up as much of the system as they can with whatever accumulated wealth they already have and ending up so that one could say decentralized in theory, but heavily centralized in practice. And in fact, even the theory lacks any kind of safeguards to prevent against that. So one might say it's really a theory of centralization, even though it look, you know, it, in this very dishonest way, acts as if it's a theory of decentralization. And that is absolutely what we see in the Bitcoin network, where incredibly small number of people do all the mining in that first sense of what cryptocurrency is. You know, and again, to run a mining rig, you need to have an enormous amount of wealth. You need to be running server farms, right, of, you know, 
huge warehouses full of racks of computers doing nothing else but generating Bitcoin. And also because the wealthy people who just want to avoid all of that, but they just buy up tons of Bitcoin, right? And I think we think that what something like an incredibly small number of people control some 70, 80, 90% of all the Bitcoins in circulation, maybe a thousand people or 5,000 people. It's one of the most concentrated forms of wealth that's ever been generated. And yet this will be sold as decentralization. And, you know, the mind just boggles and and it will be insisted on, right? Because they'll go back and point at this original paper and well, that the network architecture says it's decentralized. And, you know, woe betide you who try to argue, but look at this empirical research that shows you know, a few thousand people own all of this stuff. I found that discussion in the book fascinating. It just seems like such a clear parable for very generic free market ideology, like these very simplistic claims about the egalitarian prospects of free markets, free of government control. And then just like in a storybook or something, you end up with these like in incredibly centralized private control of assets and wealth completely outside of any public oversight or re regulatory framework, like capitalism on steroids. <clears throat> and even unlike other types of capitalist enterprises, because it's completely out of the realm of regulation and government oversight, it's like if with like the worst types of criminality and corruption and speculation and fraud. I mean, because among other things, you know, there are very, very few honest dealing good faith uses for this stuff, right? I mean, the, the most honest one is gambling. And that isn't all that honest to begin with. And then, you know, you devolve from there. Like, even if you want to responsibly invest your money, there are much better ways to do it, at least in terms of safety, than Bitcoin. So, like, I think people who have dishonest interests already know that they can manipulate free markets. And the more free, the more manipulation is possible. But this is just, it's almost like a market in which legitimate economic transactions have been sliced out. And all you are left with is this just colossal fraud just so everybody who's listening is on the same page that we are when you say gambling david you don't mean that people are betting on horses or anything like that with bitcoin i take it what you mean is uh they're making speculative investments buying bitcoin in the hope that they can sell it for a higher price for instance absolutely and and bitcoin and we should say hundreds of other tokens called altcoins, or people have less friendly names for them, that have, there is no use case for them whatsoever, right? I mean, they get made as um, some of the more famous ones. There's a guy who made a joke coin called the Dogecoin, named after a meme that has a Shiba Inu in it that is kind of cute. And he was trying to show how ridiculous the whole thing was. He made it years ago. And then recently, like Elon Musk tweeted something about how Dogecoin was great. And all of a sudden, everybody was like, oh, you got to buy Dogecoin. It's going to the moon. And there, you know, even the use case for Bitcoin which is fraudulent in my view, but it's not even there for nobody's saying, you know, Dogecoin is going to become the currency of the future. There's nothing right. there whatsoever. And what yet does Doge mean? It's just the name they get. It's a misspelling of dog, right? Ah. It's, it's a picture of a Shiba Inu. And not only that, then there was a splinter off that. There's also Shiba Inu coin. 
because some people thought that the Shiba Inu, I, I don't even know how the stories of how these things fork into different versions. But if you, you know, you can go on the sites where they, even the NASDAQ listed company Coinbase, which is an exchange for these tokens, they sell, I don't know, something like 50 or 100 different tokens. And none of them, except for Bitcoin or Ethereum, even have the story about them, about why they should be used. So it is just purely like throwing money at this ticker symbol that I think is going to go up because my buddy told me it was going to go up. It's not like, oh, this company makes a product that I think is going to be bought and sold a lot in the future or what, nothing. It's just this token is cute. I bet it's going to go up. It is, it is like the most purely speculative form of gambling, you know, outside of whatever, Las Vegas or something. And Las Vegas might be less corrupt in a lot of ways. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Well, one of the, the arguments that you are making in the book is that the rise of Bitcoin brought 
extremist views into the mainstream. What are some of these views and, and like, where do they come from? I and mean, that's one of the reasons I really got interested in them at, at all. It was, you know, I spent some time working as a, as a grunt, basically, in, in the technology part of Wall Street in the 1990s. And, you know, you just have to absorb a certain amount of subject area knowledge in order to do that work. You know, I learned what are the parts of Wall Street that the professionals consider moderately responsible and safe and what are the risky parts and what are the fraud parts. And the fraud parts tend to be places that put ads in the back of the cheaper newspapers and tell you to buy penny stocks and tell you to buy gold and you should buy gold directly from the person telling you that you should buy gold and you should buy gold because, <laughs> you know, the, the world is about to collapse. And, you know, you just learn, you know, avoid this stuff, right? This We don't tamp it out entirely and who knows why, but it's, you know, these people are fraudsters. And not that Wall Street is not full of fraud, but this is a different level of fraud, right? It's, and you just learn to avoid it. And I did encounter in some of that, you know, just reading about it, like some of these conspiracy theories that have to do with gold in particular, that have a long history in world culture and US culture, but definitely have a kind of inflection point around the New Deal in the US, where one of the successive demonetizations of gold caused a lot of people who held gold to start attacking the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve as somehow trying to steal things from them. And this conjoins with sort of anti-tax agitation, which has a long history in right-wing politics in the U.S., but also with extremist politics in the U.S. So I'd read a little bit about this stuff. Not that central banking is so wonderful all the time and not that the Federal Reserve is so wonderful, but there is a whole, you know, there is a, a set of stories that are largely anti-Semitic in character and Henry Ford promoted them and other people like that. And that are just, you know, the Federal Reserve is actually a secret cabal of wealthy Jewish bankers who tell you that their job is to modulate inflation and unemployment, but in fact, they're manipulating the economy to make themselves rich. And it was shocking to me how quickly when Bitcoin started to emerge, even in the early 2010s, all of a sudden I was seeing these same things that I was used to seeing in the very far back of not even the major papers on Wall Street. All of a sudden, here they were being promoted by people who were supposedly interested in building this technology. That really sort of set my spider sense tingling, like, why am I seeing this stuff again? And at first I thought it was kind of just an occasional thing, but the more you start to dig, you realize the whole space is just saturated with this stuff, absolutely saturated with it. And one of the main ones that is pretty narrowly economic in character is the idea that comes out of these gold people that inflation, which most of us think of, refers to rising prices for buying things, and therefore the dollars we hold are worth a little bit less. But they recharacterize inflation to mean the issuance of money by a central bank. You know, and this is, by the way, this is the wealthy person's view of inflation, right? It is not an ordinary person's view of inflation. But you can see why people with a lot of money in the bank, in savings or whatever, could get upset if a government in which their holdings are denominated starts to issue a lot of currency. And I don't know how true it is even for them, but and Andrew may know a lot more than I do, but it goes far back in history. And, and to, we get to the point in more recent years when stuff flips on its head. And especially now in the world of Bitcoin, I cannot tell you the, the sort of reality-denying conversations you can have with people where 
they will tell you to your face that, you know, the U.S. dollar is experiencing hyperinflation right now, that Bitcoin is a store of value. And it's the it's the solution to the hyperinflation that the U.S. dollar is experiencing. And when you say Bitcoin lost half its value in three months, that is hyperinflation. If Bitcoin is a currency, which it isn't, but if it were a currency, losing half your value in three months is hyperinflation of a sort that the U.S. dollar has rarely if ever experienced. And they will they will not even talk to you about this subject, right? Because all they care about is the fact that the number of tokens that has been generated over that three-month period is relatively small, and therefore it can't experience inflation. I guess if you define Bitcoin as, as money, which begs the question, then, then that's correct. It begs the whole question. I tell you, I, I found this aspect of your book fascinating because I've known for the longest time that these right-wing people tend to be what we call gold bugs, believers in the gold standard, very much against central bank issued or backed money. But the argument was always tied to the fact that paper money and electronic money has no intrinsic value. You can't brush your teeth with it. You can't eat it. You can't, you know, drive it. But gold gold is solid and tangible and has got intrinsic value and so everything should be based on real stuff real stuff that has value like gold and these same arguments that have traditionally been trotted out to defend the gold standard against you know electronic money central bank issued money are now being used to justify as money the most the, the thing that has totally no intrinsic value at all like bitcoin it's it's completely electronic apart from certain so-called mining issues uh, it, it it just amazed me that these people would flip from being rooted in money needs to be based on something that has intrinsic value to the, the far opposite and what ties it together as you show very well i think is these different things are being used in service of certain right-wing ideologies and really doesn't have anything to do with intrinsic value of gold or anything like that. You know, and I've had to read much more about the gold standard than I ever thought I would. L let me just echo what you just said. The amazing mental gymnastics that these people can go through, you know, to say the Bitcoin is and isn't the thing that it, it should be like and isn't like at the same time, you know, because a big part of their theory is based on this supposed analysis of what makes gold better than paper money, like you said. And then they have to flip around and say, but actually, gold is bad at the things that we claim it's good for. Because if you say to a Bitcoin person, okay, well, great, you just made your argument for why you should only have your money stored in things that have intrinsic value like gold. Why don't you put your money into gold? You know, oh, well, you <laughs> you just created the cardinal sin because, of course, they need you to buy Bitcoin. So they all of a sudden gold becomes terrible at, at storing value. <laughs> and you're just, you know, <laughs> and, and let alone, I mean, maybe this is more too technical, but the word standard in the gold standard is fascinating, right? Because the standard refers to essentially a regulation that governments negotiate amongst each other for the most part, right? Of what is going to be the relationship between the paper money and circulation and the amount of gold that we have stored in our bank. And it's a number, right? It's a number that changed over time and was a constant source of argument. It's one of the reasons we abandoned the gold standard because they were constantly having to 
and discuss what the proper exchange rate should be. And, you know, you would think listening to the Bitcoin people that it was just like an artifact of nature, that they basically were only simply trading gold at some kind of natural value that the gold had. But that that was almost never true, right? It was always a, a government creation at some level, right? Or a banker's creation. Yes, yeah, the, the, the rate of exchange between dollars and gold, for instance, was revised several times throughout the history of the gold standard. By the way, I don't know for our listeners' benefit, the U.S. went off the gold standard domestically during the New Deal era under under Roosevelt, and all the other countries had pretty much done that, which meant that the government would not take your dollars and give you gold in return at a fixed rate. And the U.S. went off the gold standard internationally, and that was the collapse of the old international trading order, the Bretton Woods system, when Nixon abrogated it in the early 1970s. And since then, we've just had a lot of monetary instability in the world economy, currencies fluctuating against one another continually. When FDR stopped allowing direct exchanges of gold, right? That is around the same moment when you get these conspiracy theories, you know, gaining a lot of force. And they have a very strongly right-wing character at that point, right? Because among other things, they oppose Roosevelt getting involved in World War II. And some of them were even aligned with the fascist forces in Europe. And we, I think we know historically that Gold has been looked at, especially by very conservative people, as a way of preventing the state from getting involved in foreign adventures that the right didn't want them to be involved in, although it didn't seem to work when the right wanted them to be involved in them. But it has it's a tool that the right likes to use a lot to try to control what you know the power of government or to channel it in the directions that they want it to be channeled in and to prevent it from being used in other directions. And of course, in that way, it ties to a lot of much more recent sort of anti-state, anti-drain-the-beast, drain-the-swamp type rhetoric that we hear you know, constantly coming from the more current right. Toward the beginning of the book, David, you talk about cyber libertarianism as a sort of intellectual, I don't know, milieu that uh, Bitcoin comes from. And you, you argue that cyber libertarian ideas are basically far-right ideas, but also that people can have these ideas without knowing it, and maybe be, be a cyber libertarians without knowing it. So maybe you could go into that a little bit, explain what you mean by cyber libertarianism, and also like how these ideas can be uh, more widely accepted than the amount of people who like self-identify as as right-wing or libertarian. Sure. Uh, one of my favorite topics, and in fact, that is uh, the book I'm currently working on. This is, uh, this is the main topic of it. And the idea of cyber libertarianism was developed by some thinkers that I really respect in the 1990s. And it, the idea was not that there are quote-unquote political libertarians who like digital technology, although that is absolutely there are a lot of those people. Maybe I should say not just that, but this second idea, which I think is more interesting, which is that the promotion of technology in our world, or digital technology in particular, has carried with it a bunch of ideas about the the, the transformational possibilities of digital technology that are grounded in right-wing thought, but where that is not immediately obvious on the surface, right? Where they look like politically neutral or let's say an idea like freedom of speech which one can see both right and left wing support for and there probably should be support for it in you know at, at some caveats but um, one can see reasons that people across the political spectrum would support something like freedom of speech but to give some examples of how this works in the digital space there are a whole bunch of political causes 
that we see structuring the sort of talk about politics online, whose orientation in terms of left-right politics is very, very unclear. So, and these are hot words that pretty much everybody near technology knows about. We talk about things like encryption and privacy and surveillance and censorship and network neutrality and what happens when the government tries to regulate the internet. And you find people just diving into support for these topics without any seeming ability to articulate what are the foundational principles that I am endorsing when I say I support this perspective. And maybe the sharpest example of this is network neutrality, um, which is a phrase that many of us hear and that people who identify in some loose way as like more left than right, like somebody like John Oliver, create videos all about how wonderful net, net neutrality is and how it's a civil rights cause that everybody should be on board with. And I picked that one in particular because it has such an interesting history. Network neutrality is an idea that was developed by a digital, relatively moderate digital lawyer guy, Timothy Wu, in the early 2000s. And it was an idea about how to promote competition in the digital business marketplace. He was a little bit concerned about monopolies, which are certainly a real concern. But the point was that he wanted to he wanted the government to be able to intervene in such a way that it would insist on there being a free market. And that idea then mutated into this other idea that the people who provide internet service, you know, internet service providers who provide the connectivity to our homes and our businesses like Comcast and Verizon should not be able to, quote unquote, discriminate against different content providers so that the example that's often given is, well, Verizon shouldn't be able to make my blog come to your home more slowly than it lets Google come to your home. Verizon shouldn't be able to, and they will use the word censorship at this point, they shouldn't be able to censor the internet by discriminating against different types of content. Just imagine if they started doing that for political reasons. So you have these two causes that go under the name network neutrality. They have almost nothing to do with each other. And yet people on the left will call their senators and congresspeople like crazy if any kind of legislation touching network neutrality comes out. And yet they don't even seem to realize that what the Congress people are hearing is the first thing. They're hearing, make sure there is a free market, you know, make sure there's no legislation that would interfere with the free market in, in digital technology. It has nothing to do with the second concept. And the second concept doesn't even make any sense. It's not an accurate description of how the network works. You know, my blog is considerably slower than Google, and there are a lot of good reasons for that, and they have nothing to do with Verizon. You know, what happens is this serves the people, you know, this sort of deeply free market people who insist on the government not regulating the market. And yet people, including quite a few of my friends, like honestly believe they're pursuing kind of left wing civil rights cause. And they seem to think that network neutrality means something like the fairness doctrine that we used to have in broadcast media in the U.S. And all I can say to that is, if only... The fairness doctrine was a pretty interesting idea that I think was, for the most part, pretty useful. And I wish that there was some kind of parallel fairness doctrine, although I don't know how it would work on the internet, but I wish it existed. But net neutrality has nothing to do with that. And the people who promote this, they know exactly what they're doing. I think this is a very interesting point because it is, it is quite confusing. Can you 
but can you explain why Google loads faster than your blog and why Verizon has nothing to do with it? Absolutely. Um, you know, Google has content content distribution centers all over the country and all over the world. They spend millions of dollars on them. They have servers everywhere that make sure that that content is delivered to me the minute I type their URL into a browser. And my blog, which I pay $25 a month for, has a few servers from some rinky-dink provider that I pay for. And that is by far the main limiting factor in how fast my blog gets to you than anything else. So it's the proximity to the user of the server and the number of server links. Right. The number of servers that are out there that, you know, which are that just dwarf mine by a factor of a million. And like, I don't know if that's right or wrong, frankly. I don't, I don't even have a strong intuition about it. Should Google be forced to operate at the speed of my blog or should my blog be, you know, should Google, should they be forced to host my blog so that it's really super fast? I don't even know. I, like, uh, and, and by the way, instances of ISPs actually doing this are vanishingly close to zero because, of course, people monitor them and they would catch them if they ever did it. And it's hard to imagine what the business case would be for doing it. So, you know, you can actually find people saying, imagine that I will editorialize a little bit. Imagine the nightmare hellscape if ISP service was like cable service, which, by the way, are the same providers, and you had to pick and choose from a select from a menu of channels that you wanted and pay different amounts for the for the ones you got. And it's amazing that you and you can read people say, you know at saying this with a straight face and you I read it and I'm like you mean exactly the situation we have in an extremely important form of media and that nobody says is like some deep affront to democracy or freedom and you already as you probably know right you can pay your ISP to have faster or slower service and even to incorporate certain packages in it or not like this is just in a lot of ways, it is a fake cause that has been generated by people who are who are adamantly opposed to regulation of digital technology in a way that is, re- I mean, that's part of what is also interesting is that the ISPs are on one side of this fight, but the other side is Google and Facebook and Twitter and so forth, who are adamantly opposed to what to regulation of their businesses. And they have seeded, you know, they put a lot of money into this battle. And they, you know, so they are able to generate all of these, like, you know, civil rights causes and NGOs and stuff, just promoting it, you know, in a lot of ways, it's not even about the issue that they talk about. Like, it's just this massive, anytime there is any threat to regulate the internet, they can generate hundreds of thousands of people to call all their legislators and just be like, you're about to destroy the most important thing that ever lived. They have this phrase the inter- the internet as we know it and they you know if you google something like the internet as we know it is under threat every year they have a new thing where the internet is going to be torn to shreds if a piece of legislation passes and because these journalists often are deeply in bed with the technology industry they have no obligation to go back and do retrospective pieces on the few occasions when the legislation has actually passed and the internet as we know it didn't change at all let alone dying Well, that is just fascinating. I have not heard that perspective on net neutrality before. So that gives me a lot to think about. We'll have to have you back on the podcast when your next book comes out about this. Um, But, you know, another thing in this book, another example of right-wing ideas that are embedded in these discussions about cryptocurrencies um, is the idea of freedom. You say that this concept of freedom is ever present in discussions of cryptocurrency how how is that so and you're like what are your cr- critiques of this notion of freedom 
Sure. Well, you know, you could do it in the philosophical sense of the sort of negative freedom and positive freedom that goes back to people like Isaiah Berlin and talk about freedom from and freedom to. And it is absolutely clear that these people are all about freedom from and freedom from government, right? And never about the more positive freedoms that, you know, paradoxically would go along with things like democracy and egalitarianism and so forth, which generally requires some kind of authority who has an ability to modulate people's rights and interests in, in various things. But I think any, perhaps with Bitcoin, an even more sort of pointed thing is one of the ways that fascism works, I think, as a sort of philosophical construct is that it kind of turns Marx on his head, right? And it says that, um, not only is economics really important to politics, but in fact, economics is all there is to politics. And the only freedom is economic freedom. And the only way to achieve any kind of social good is through an absolute free market. So all causes must be ultimately reduced back to deregulating the market. That will produce equality, that will produce egalitarianism, that will produce social justice, and it doesn't matter you know, how much evidence you generate to show that this is just blatantly false, they can always turn it back. You know, The reason you talk, I talk about it, at least, and some scholars do with regard to fascism, is that you know, it ultimately throws these economic rights up against any kind of civil rights or human rights or any protection for, pe you know, for people's equalitarian interests. Um, and of course, it does nothing when people use those economic rights to gather to themselves huge amounts of power, including the power to do violence, and there's just nothing to do about it. They actually like that, right? And this is absolutely clear in Bitcoin stuff, right, where it is, as you start to dig through the discourse about it, Again and again, it turns out that the only thing they want is economic freedom. And even though they will cynically use the interests of minorities and disenfranchised people and poor people to the hilt to try to sell what they're doing, what they are saying, you don't have to dig that far until you find out what they're saying is, well, the free market is the only way to help those people. And any, any attempt by government to help those people, you know, and as we know from very typical forms of right-wing discourse, any attempt by government to help those people is actually a disguised, self-interested, fake selflessness that is, you know, organized crime or whatever that, that they will often say about government, right? And you just, the mind boggles, right, that, that government is actually a disguised, self-interested agency, but for-profit companies acting on greed as the major principle, that is honest because it's not hiding the fact that it is not, you know, that it is purely self-interested. I, I, maybe it's worth talking about a little bit. Like, I mean, it's been amazing to watch the Bitcoin people kind of adopt the language of social justice and minority rights. And one of their favorite phrases is bank the unbanked, right? That they say that, oh, there's all these, they have certain statistics about how 20 or 30% of Americans don't have a bank and like Bitcoin is going to solve this for them. And that's what it's really for, right? That is what it's really for is to help these people who don't have enough money to have a bank account. And and they see these people who are obviously some of the most disenfranchised people in our society, and they see them as marks, right, for their own scam. And if I say something to them like, and I've talked with some people who work on this even, right, you know, something like 95% of everyone in the continental U.S. is eligible to open a credit union account, even if they're not a citizen. And most of those accounts are absolutely free and have 
no or almost no minimums, right? Maybe a hundred dollar minimum to open a checking account. And and you say, well, that sure seems like a great way to bank the unbanked, right? To, and by the way, it's got insurance and you know, you could be almost positive that your $100 is going to be there next week if you put it in there today. And, you know, and then they become hostile, right? Like, oh, no, that's not what we meant. We meant, you know, we we're going to get them to buy our Shiba Inu tokens or whatever and get wealthy. We didn't actually mean provide them with banking services that they probably do really need and provide them in an honest and upfront way and with good oversight. And and forget the fact that a lot of the reason a lot of those people don't have access to banking is because they don't have rich access to electronic services. And if you don't have enough electronic services to bank over the internet, you are not going to have services to use Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I thought one of the most interesting, best parts of your book was the criticism of the libertarian conception of freedom. And that's something we've talked a lot about uh, on this podcast. One thing that you point out, and this was also pointed out uh, by Matt Hongoltz Hetling, he wrote the book Libertarian Walks into a Bear. We interviewed him. When these people talk about freedom, it's not only freedom from, it's specifically freedom from government. It's never about freedom from corporations. It's never about freedom from the COVID molecules that the anti-vax people are spewing in our faces. I'm, I'm for that kind of freedom from, you know, I'm, I'm for freedom from being tormented by the people who won't mask and won't get vaccinated and by these horrible libertarians. But they've got such a narrow, occluded definition of freedom, wherein it's as if nobody does anything or can do anything to hinder the freedom of other people. Only the government can do that, which is completely nuts. And because of that, you can't even talk to these people because they're not really talking about freedom. They're really talking about they want to do what the hell they want to do without any government restriction. And that's the, the sum and substance of the ideology as far as I can see. So I think you got it quite right. I mean, we see it in the anti-vax protests where they use words like tyranny to describe government asking you to wear masks. And yet what these people seem to want on the surface is to be tyrants themselves, right? To really have a, a kind of extreme tyrannical power over people around them. And because it's not labeled government in their minds, whatever that means, you know, they don't, they can't even conceptualize, or they pretend that they can't conceptualize it as being related to the kind of power that they claim they hate. As you said, it's extremely hard to talk to these people because they, you know, you see it in the um, really crazy thing that famously the sociologist Max Weber said in the early part of the 20th century, the state is defined as having a monopoly on legitimate violence in a given geographic area. And whatever we think of that, the point of his statement was the word legitimate, right? That there is a, there the state can do things legally, that it can declare others doing it illegal. And what you see people, including in the crypto space, doing is they rewrite this into the state has a monopoly on violence, period. And this puts them in this, you know, this cognitive space that I, it's almost hard to imagine where they, they grant themselves the ability to say shooting somebody with a gun isn't violence because the government didn't do it and only the government can do violence. And, I, you know, a lot of these hardcore libertarians seem to actively believe this, that anything I do is justified, anything I do is freedom, and it's only when government does something that it violates freedom. And, you know, you see people 
from many walks of life say, why should I, why should your freedom involve you being able to shoot me? And Weber wasn't even right about legitimate violence. I don't think he was either. I mean, because in all capitalist societies, people have the right to deprive other people of food, of means of production, of the wherewithal by which they need to live. Unless you do what I say and do it my way, you starve to death. If that's not the exercise of violence that is legitimated by the laws and property rights, I don't know what is. I, I agree. I, I Paper deserves a lot of criticism. And, uh, you know, it's just an aside, really, in the article. He doesn't really even support it. But regardless, he was certainly not saying that violence itself didn't exist unless the government did it. Well, the book is called The Politics of Bitcoin, Software as Right-Wing Extremism. I thought it was a great read, and this has been a great discussion. So thank you to David Columbia to, for being on our podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a fantastic conversation. Yes, thank you for being Enjoyed on. It. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 